0: Father, we just come to you today and thank you for the privilege we have to be born-again believers, the privilege we have to come into the holiest place of all, into the holiest of holies and, and be present with you. But Lord, there's so many of us that, that live in the outer courts. Some people don't even live in the outer courts. They're living out in the wilderness, Lord, and uh, in, in, in living for this world and, and serving the devil. But, Lord, there's good Christians who, who still haven't made the way into your presence, Lord. They, they live in the outer courts, and they're trying to, to please you with, with their own sacrifices, Lord, and realizing that there's only one sacrifice that you accept, and that's the sacrifice made by Jesus Christ. Lord, there's other Christians who are living in the holy place. They live in the light of the word, Lord, and they, they live in your presence, but... And you know them, Lord, and you know that they're serving you, but, but, Lord, very seldom do they find a way into your presence, into the real presence of a holy God. And so, Lord, as we embark on this study of Hebrews, I ask that, that Lord, you take us all by the hand and you lead us into a gr- greater relationship with you, a relationship that we can only have when we understand the finality of the cross, when we rest in the finality of the cross. So, Lord, I ask that you use this study to, to just make us all uh, not only better Christians, Lord, but more powerful Christians as we live in daily in your presence. And I ask that you do that by the power of your Holy Spirit uh, through the gleaning of your word, Lord. And so we ask all of these things in the name of Jesus Christ. It's in his precious name that I pray. Amen. When I went off to seminary back in the 90s, I just knew that was going to be a great spiritual experience. I just couldn't imagine, I mean, studying the Bible uh, eight hours a day and learning, even going deeper and deeper into the Word of God. Well, when I got, out, got to seminary, what I found out real quickly was you don't really study the Bible, you study about the Bible. And and seminary is not a spiritual experience. It's an academic experience. It's where you go to further your education about the Bible, but it's not going to lead you into a stronger relationship with the Lord. And I don't blame the seminary for what happened to me while I was there in those early years. I don't blame them at all because that's not what they're called to do. They're to teach you the Greek, and they're to teach you about... Uh, critical studies of the Bible and theology and history of the church and those kind of things. And the, I don't think any seminary is going to ha- has the goal of bringing you into a closer relationship with the Lord. Now, maybe that's the goal they should have, but that's not the goal they do have. And so I went off to seminary and when I left, I really had a strong relationship. I felt I had a strong relationship with the Lord. I got saved in a really powerful way, and I was a new believer, and I was in the Word constantly, and I was really really felt close to the Lord. Well, about midway through seminary, I I realized just how far I had drifted from a close relationship with the Lord. I realized how dry my relationship with the Lord had become, how aloof He seemed to be, and and just how cold things seemed to be. and, And I didn't like where I was at. And, and I didn't like it at all, and so I made a decision to put away some of the distractions that that were taking place in my life, and instead of concentrating so much on making A's in seminary, I decided I wanted to concentrate on regaining what I had before I, I, I left for seminary and regain the strong relationship that I felt I had with the Lord. And so what I began to do was I began to pray. Now you go over to, to flip with me over to, uh, Revelation for a minute, the last book in the Bible, when Jesus speaks to the church, church at Ephesus in chapter number two. And look at chapter two, verse number one, and listen to what he says: "To the angel of the church of Ephesus, write these things," says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Listen to what he says: "I know your works." I know you're working hard to, 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 to in seminary or wherever you're at. I know you're working hard in your ministry or whatever you're doing. I know your labor. I know your patience and that you cannot bear those who are evil and you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars and you have persevered. In other words, you're doing my will. You're trying to, to, to live for the Lord and you've persevered and you've been patient and you haven't quit. And you haven't become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You have left your first love. And that's exactly what I realized when I was at seminary. I had left my first love, I had drifted away from my relationship with Jesus Christ. And he tells you how you fix it. He says, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works. And so what I decided was, well, what were the first works that I were doing when I had a close relationship with the Lord? Well, I prayed a lot. I knew that. And I studied the Bible a lot. Here I was at seminary studying all about the Bible, but I wasn't studying the Bible. So I made a decision to get really strongly back into the Word and to spend more time praying. But here's the problem. When I was a Christian, when I first got saved, when I studied the Bible, you know why I studied the Bible? I studied the Bible because I want to be present with the Lord. You know why I prayed when, I, when, I, when, I was first, when, when you were first born again? Man, when you pray, why are you praying? You're praying because you want to be close to the Lord. And so what I found myself doing, I found myself legalistically reading the Bible and legalistically praying to try to regain something, and, and, and something was missing there. Because I, I couldn't get that, that strong relationship back no matter how hard I prayed or no matter how hard I studied. And, I, and, and so I went back and I understood this text right here and I understood that I needed to do the first work. Well, what was missing? I mean, what was missing that was keeping me from regaining that strong relationship I had with the Lord? Well, i, I tell you how I found it. About that time, and I'm about the midway through seminary, somebody gave me a copy of Andrew Murray's commentary on Hebrews called The Holiest of All. And I've recommended this book to several of you. It's a devotional commentary. It's about 600 pages long. So he really goes into detail uh, in his uh, devotional commentary on the book of Hebrews. And when I got into that study, and I I went into a diligent study, That's what got me back into a strong relationship with the Lord. In fact, i got to tell you this, and I'll share the testimony with you. Towards the end of that study, I was in my room praying one night, and I had come back into an understanding of what it means to go into the holiest of holies, to go into the presence of the Lord. And that night, I can remember I was right at the end of the study, the Lord took me in to the holiest of holies in a very physical way. And I could sense the very physical presence of God. And that experience stayed with me for the rest. I mean, I only had one experience, like maybe two experiences like that before and maybe one or two since. But that experience reminds me and reminded me then But every time I go to prayer, if I go to prayer in the right way, if I understand what Christ has done for me and I rest in what Christ has done for me, I am in the holiest of holies in the presence of God. And so, hey, I think everybody goes through dry spells at time. Are any of y'all going through, it? I mean, don't raise your hand, but any of y'all going through a dry spell with the Lord right now? Well, you really don't sense his presence. And, and and I think the Lord brings us through those wildernesses at time. And the reason he does that is to get us to press in. To press in and, and to want the things that he has to give us uh, at his throne room. To realize that things are dry. To realize that the that Christianity is much more than what we're experiencing. And so he'll take us through a dry season, and, 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 and so we seek the Lord and seek him in the right way. And hey, if you're going through a dry spell, and you're, you don't feel that you're, when you're in prayer that you're in the presence of God, then the book of Hebrews is the book you need to study, because it will take you there. I believe, going back to the book of Hebrews, it's one of the most important books in the Bible for a Christian. Now, if you're not a Christian, hey, man, you need to, you need to start off in, in Romans, the first part of Romans. But Hebrews, to me, for the Christian, is, is the quintessential book of theology on how we're to approach God. Schuller English, uh, in his introduction to his commentary of Hebrews. Listen to how he describes the book of Hebrews. He said it may be the most important book in the Bible in that it contains the chief doctrines of the Christian faith as well as being a book of infinite logic and great beauty. To read it is to breathe the atmosphere of heaven itself. To study it is to be led from immaturity to maturity into the kingdom of Christian truth and Christ himself. It is to take hold of of the perfection that christ has given us that's really what the book of hebrews is about to understanding and taking hold of the perfection that christ has given to us by his sacrifice on the cross well we can't go into the book of hebrews without a proper introduction because it it definitely uh, you know i don't I, i usually don't spend much time on introductions to new testament books because it's pretty pretty much self-explanatory. Pretty much Paul says, I wrote it, and we know Paul wrote it, and we don't have to deal with authorship or dates or any of the other things. But for the book of Hebrews, I think it's very important that we get a proper grounding, a proper introduction. And, and so let me begin today by, by uh, talking a little bit about some of the, the introductory uh, elements of this book. Uh, the title of the book, if you're looking at your your uh, New King James. What's the title say? It says the epistle to the Hebrews. If you were to pick up a Greek New Testament, it would say pro hebras or to the Hebrews. And so I'm talking about a modern-day Greek New Testament. We don't have the original Greek New Testaments. And so if you were to look at the, the UBS uh, uh, Greek, the scholarly Greek New Testament, it would say to the Hebrews. And that's what my New King James says, is it says the epistle to the Hebrews. There's a little bit of problem with that, because I don't know that we can call the book of Hebrews an epistle, because it really is more of a treatise or a, a systematic theology than it is a, a, an epistle. You don't see a salutation there. In Paul's letters, you always saw a salutation. Now, if you have the King James, anybody here have the King James? Anybody using the King James version of the Bible? If you have the King James Version, listen to the title. The title is The Epistle of Paul, uh, The Epistle of Paul the Apostle to the Hebrews. Now that's taken from some of the older manuscripts. The manuscripts that they used to to translate the King James actually had the Epistle of Paul, uh, the, uh, the Epistle of Paul the Apostle to the Hebrews. And I like that title. But what does that title assume? It assumes what? It assumes that Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. And most modern-day Greek scholars, those guys who make their living studying Greek, do not believe that Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. And, and, and really, scholars throughout the centuries have debated... The authorship of Hebrews. Uh, Lots of them don't believe that Paul wrote uh, the book of Hebrews. And you get various, varying opinions from the so-called church fathers. Now, I call them so-called church fathers. They're called the church fathers, but they don't, most of the people who we call church fathers to me are heretics. Origen, for example. Origen believed in purgatory. Origen believed, it was a universalist. He believed, Origen believed that even the devil one day would be saved. So when anybody tells you they start quoting Origen, I always back off, you know, have you really read any of Origen's stuff? I mean, because he's really much, pretty much was a heretic. Tertullian, you ever heard this guy, Tertullian? Tertullian was one of the founders of the Catholic Church, or the beginnings of the Catholic Church. Tertullian believed in martyrdom. He was almost like, a, like an extreme Islamist. He believed that if you really wanted to, 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 to revel in the, the best of paradise, then you had to be martyred. Now, he died in his sleep, but, uh, so he didn't make it. But he believed that martyrdom was the way to the, the highest thrones in, in heaven. He also wrote a book called Against Women. And, and people don't like to talk about this when they talk about Tertullian, but Tertullian hated women. He believed that the women were the curse of the earth. And all the way back to Eve, they've caused all, it was Eve who caused, now Paul, he didn't read Paul because Paul disagrees with it. Paul said Adam was the one who rebelled against God. Eve was deceived. But, he, but Tertullian believed that Eve was the one who caused all the problems, and so all women are cursed. So whenever you hear about Tertullian women, yeah, I know you're not going to like this guy, and I don't want you to like this guy. So whenever I talk about the church fathers, I I, kind of, you know, have a caveat about what they say. But one of the things that it's good to read the church fathers were that they did call themselves Christians, and they were part of some Christian church, and their writings were kept. And so we have their writings. And so when they talk about the author of Hebrews, well they they were closer, much closer to the time of Hebrews was written than we are, and so you kind of want to hear what they had to say about it, even though you might wanna, not want to buy in their theology. But, but as far as the church fathers go, there were varying, varying opinions of, as to who wrote uh, the book of Hebrews. Justin Martyr said, and Eusebius, and Ambrose, and Jerome, I'm sure you've heard of those names, and Ambrose, they all believed that Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. Clement of Alexander, and I kind of like what he believed. He claimed that Paul wrote it. Now, this guy's in the 2nd or 3rd century. And he claimed to know that Paul wrote it and that Luke translated the book for him. Paul wrote it in Hebrew to the Hebrews, and then later Luke translated it into Greek. Origen and Clement of Rome, uh, Apollos. Uh, believed that Apollos wrote it. Tert- Apollos, remember, we see Apollos in 1 Corinthians. We see him in the Book of Acts. Uh, Apollos, this this guy that later uh, was a great, supposedly a great preacher. Tertullian believed that Barnabas wrote it. We know Barnabas, you know, would hung out with Paul, and and so that would make sense. Uh, and so you get varying, uh, various varying opinions as to who wrote the book. Now. Why is there so much disagreement? Why would somebody disagree with some of the earlier manuscripts which, say, which give the title of the book, the book of uh, Hebrews uh, uh, by the Apostle Paul? I mean, they, in, that, in their title, they name the Apostle Paul. Why do so many people disagree with that, especially modern scholars? Most modern scholars, as I said before, don't believe that Paul wrote... The book of Hebrews. Well, here's one of the problems. We don't see Paul named anywhere in the book of Hebrews. Just, just look back at the, and, and, and as I said, there's no salutation to this book, and, and, but look back at the book right before Philemon. In Philemon, you see, you see it, you have a greeting there, a salutation, And it says there, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother. Look back at Titus, the next book, on the next page. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. And so Paul always named himself when he wrote an epistle. So here he doesn't name himself. And so some scholars say, well, that's proof positive that that Paul didn't write the book of Hebrews. Now, would there be a reason... Those of you that have been hung out a while and studied the Bible, would there be a reason maybe that Paul wouldn't name himself if he was writing to the Jews? Certainly. The Jews hated Paul. They would have picked it up and saw the apostles. One of the reasons for writing this book, Paul wanted to see the Jews get saved. And so he knew that if any Jew that wasn't saved picked this book up and saw his name in it, they would throw it away right away. They wouldn't even read it. And so that would make sense that he wouldn't uh, name himself as the author, and so uh, that's one of the reasons they don't believe that Paul wrote the book because it doesn't mention his name. The other reason, and this is probably this this reason probably has a lot more merit to it, the Greek writing style, and 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 I have to trust the Greek scholars on this. I took Greek, a lot of Greek. I couldn't see the difference, but they can see a big difference supposedly between the writing style and the vocabulary that Paul uses in all of his epistles and the vocabulary and style that's used in the book of Hebrews. And so they, that's the main reason that most modern scholars don't believe that Paul wrote the book. Let me give you some examples here, or a couple examples. Uh, if, you, if you look at Hebrews chapter number 1, and you see where Paul is quoting the Old Testament. You can tell where he's quoting the Old Testament because it's in italics. So, so you, see there, you see there, like in verse number 5, he says, For to, to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Now he's quoting there from the Psalms. He's quoting there from, from, from the Psalms. Uh, and again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. So he just goes directly into these quotations of the Old Testament. Paul didn't do that in his epistles. Go back with me to the book of Romans and look in Romans chapter number 3. The book of Romans chapter number 3. See what Paul does as he begins a quotation. Look at what he does. He says in verse number 10, as it is written. You see that? Uh, go over to chapter 8. Uh, I mean, you can find this anywhere, but go over to chapter 8 and look at verse number 36 of Romans. You see, before he quotes from the Old Testament, he says there, as it is written. You see, you see that? And that was pretty much what he did most of the time. But if you jump over to chapter 9, Paul does, doesn't always do that, because if you jump over to chapter 9, Verse number 25, it says, as he says in Hosea. Well, see, that's exactly the way uh, it's quoted in the book of Hebrews. Now, here's probably a bigger problem with the authorship, uh, get, uh, crediting the authorship to Paul. Paul, and you'd have to know a little bit about these things in order to understand it, Paul always quoted from Hebrew scripture, always. Never, there's no exceptions to that. The author to Hebrews quotes from the Septuagint. I don't know if you've heard of the Septuagint or not, but the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. That's the Old Testament that the Greeks carried around with them. And so this causes a lot of problems for uh, scholars to say that Paul was the author because Paul would never have quoted. I mean, Paul was a Hebrew scholar, so he didn't need the Greek New Testament so how do we reconcile that I mean how could we give Pauline authorship to to uh, Hebrews if he quoted from the Septuagint the vocabulary is different the styles a little bit different I mean how could we do that well let me let me. I'll get to that in a second. Let me give you some good reasons for believing that Paul wrote the book of Hebrews, and uh, hang on to this because there's a good reason for believing that Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. We're not just wasting time here. We're not just spinning our wheels. We're, we're heading to a to a to a reason. Uh, there's many good reasons why I believe that Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. But one of the reasons is that many of the older transcripts did entitle the book the Epistle of Paul the Apostle to the Hebrews. There were many manuscripts. And and some of them, I think, some of the better manuscripts. They say the manuscripts that were used in the translation of the King James are not as good as the older manuscripts, but I don't believe that's true. And I think think you find less error in them than you do in some of the so-called better manuscripts. All right. Here's the second reason I believe that Paul wrote this book. The theology is definitely Pauline. It is Paul's theology. Now, Where did Paul get his theology? Remember, he spent three years out in the desert with Jesus Christ. And so so where ultimately did that theology come from? It came from Jesus Christ. And so, but this is so appalling. Paul says in the middle, right in the middle of this book, you remember in Romans and in Galatians what he says, what was the theme of the book? The just shall live by faith. Well, right in the middle of the Hebrews, he quotes that scripture from Habakkuk again, and he says, the just shall live by faith faith. So, so the, the, the theology is definitely Pauline. The vocabulary, yeah, there's some differences there. There's some words that are used in Hebrews that weren't used in the other letters uh, but, uh, that are unique, but most of the vocabulary is the same. And so I can understand Paul was writing this to, Jew, to the Jews, and so he would set this thing up a little bit differently. Now, back to the other issue, as far as the Septuagint goes. Here's what I believe happened. If you want to be right, you can write this one down. I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm not guessing, but I'm, I don't know for sure. We, nobody knows for sure. But here's what I believe happened. Paul, when he wrote the book of Hebrews, and we're going to see, that's another reason we... We, we can believe it's Paul because the author of the book of Hebrews was in Italy, more than likely in Rome. He was confined. Who was confined in Rome? Paul was. He sent Timothy to deliver the book. Who did Paul always send or a lot of times send to deliver the book? Timothy. So it makes a lot of sense that maybe that, that it was Paul. But here's what I think happened. Paul is in his second imprisonment. Uh, This is the imprisonment, if you read 2 Timothy, where Paul is about to die. He's run his race, he's fought the fight, and he knows his time is short. He's not in a house arrest like he was in that first imprisonment. He's down in a dungeon. He doesn't have access to Hebrew scriptures. In fact, he asked Timothy to please bring me some scriptures. And if he could get a hold of anything at that time, it might have been a Septuagint. But here's what I think happened. I think Paul wrote the book, one of the last Man, wasn't it Paul's heart to reach the Jews? I mean, he wanted to reach the Jews so bad. I mean, he longed to reach the Jews. And so, so he wrote this book of Hebrews to the Jews, and then he died. And then later on, Luke or Apollos or, or Barnabas or one of those guys that some other of the church fathers attribute to the authorship came back and said, man, the theology of this book is great for Christians. We all need to read this. And so they translated it into Greek. They translated what Paul wrote in Hebrew into Greek. Now, let me tell you the last reason that I believe he wrote it. Over in 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter says there, he says, uh, he, I, I think he's referring to the book of Hebrews, or otherwise Paul wrote another book uh, to the Jews that we don't have. Because listen to what he says. He says, Our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him. Now, Peter was writing to the diaspora. He was writing to the Jews who had been dispersed. And so he says, Our beloved Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, to you Jews, as, he, as also he wrote the other epistles to the Gentiles. And so you see, Paul did write a book to the Jews, and Peter refers to that book, and so I believe that the book of Hebrews is written by Paul. Who cares? (laughs) I care. Here's why. And and here's where going to seminary kind of inoculates inoculates you to some of these things. Liberal scholars... And I can tell somebody who writes a commentary and immediately when they say Paul didn't write it, their interpretation of the book of Hebrews has all sorts of problems with it. It's so disjointed. They can't seem to tie it together. If you believe that Paul wrote this book and you study this book in the context of his other epistles, this book flows like a beautiful theological river right into the very presence of God. And, and if you don't see it that way, it becomes a legalistic book. This book, about, this book about God being mean and tough and all these warnings and these scary things that God's going to do to you. And if you see it under that, under, under, from a Hebrew frame of mind, Without the other epistles, it's so easy to misinterpret this book. So if I want to read a commentary on the book of Hebrews, I'm going to immediately look at who do they think the author is. And, 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 hey, Andrew Murray didn't believe it was Paul, but he believed someone close to Paul wrote it using Pauline theology. Well, he's got to at least be that for me. But if you take this book totally out of that context, and I think that's true with any book, you take any book out of context, then you're going to come up with all sorts of uh, uh, disjointed uh, theology. Now, who cares? I guess to some degree, we can say that. If, I mean, let's say I get to heaven and I found out Apollos wrote this book or Barnabas wrote this book or Luke wrote this book, it's not going to change the fact that I'm in heaven. It's not going to change the experiences that I had with God before I got to heaven. If you were to go to the Louvre in Paris, and you were to look up on the wall and there was a painting, and you thought that painting was a Rembrandt, and you looked at all those vivid colors and the attention to detail that Rembrandt had, and and you're looking at that painting and you say, wow, this is just spectacular. And then the museum curator comes along and he says, that's not Rembrandt, that was written, painted by Van Dyke. Does that change how you feel about that painting? No. I mean, if we find out somebody else wrote this, I, 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 it won't be the end of the world. But here's what I want you to see. You've got to interpret this book. Any book you've got to interpret. In the, just like Paul interpreted the, his books in the context of the Old Testament, We have to interpret every other book in the context of Paul's epistles. Because what was given to Paul was given to him directly by Jesus Christ. And so when I read 1 Peter, I interpret it in the context of the other epistles and, and, and vice versa. I mean, Paul's epistles line up perfectly with Peter's epistles and John's epistles and with the Gospels and vice versa on that too. Now, as I said earlier, ultimately, who is the writer? of all scripture. You know who the writer of all scripture is? None other than Jesus Christ himself. Go with me over to 1 Peter. You're right there almost. Just head a little bit towards Revelation. And I I go to this passage all the time, and and so you probably got to, your Bible probably turns right to it. But I think it's important to see We talk about the prophets, the prophets of God who said, Thus saith the Lord. Who was speaking through those prophets? None other than Jesus Christ. Look at chapter 1 of 1 Peter, verse number 10. Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, the grace through the New Testament, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them. That's who was in them giving them the words that are in the prophets in the Old Testament. The prophets wrote the Old Testament, was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. So it was Christ who spoke through the Old Testament authors, and it's Christ who speaks through the New Testament authors, and it's Christ who speaks through the book of Hebrews. Look at, Go back to Hebrews and look at verse number 1. Read verse number 1. In verse number 2, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past by the, to the fathers by the prophets through Jesus Christ, we know we just read that, has in these last days spoken to us by who? By his Son. You want the authorship of, of Hebrews? There it is right there. It's none other than Jesus Christ. He's the one who's speaking to us in this book. That's why this book is so important. All books are important but, uh, of the Bible, but that's why this book is so important important. Now, date. As far as the date goes, modern scholars who don't believe that Paul wrote the book give a late date to the book, somewhere between 80 and 100 A.D. They've got a serious problem with that date. Let me explain to you why. If you've read through the book of Hebrews, over and over again, Paul refers to temple worship and temple sacrifice. In 80 AD, where was the temple? It was gone. The Romans had totally destroyed it. Don't you think at some point when he was referring to that, he would say it doesn't exist anymore? Or let's not waste our time with this. There is no temple anymore. No, the temple was still standing when the author wrote this. Again, another reason that I believe that that Paul wrote the book. And if he wrote it, then it would have been in one of his imprisonments because we know from the closing that he was imprisoned at the time. He was imprisoned, the first imprisonment, somewhere around 60 to 62 A.D., the last one around 65, 66 A.D., and that was before the temple was destroyed, and that would make sense. I lean towards the 65, 66 A.D. Now, let's talk about the occasion. What's an occasion? What, I mean, what do we mean we talk about the occasion of, of the book? What are we talking about? We're talking about the circumstances that caused the writer to write the book. What circumstances were going on? And I, I usually don't deal in this, but it's so important in the book of Hebrews to know what the circumstances were, and they're given to us in the book. I mean, just, just go back. Most of you are familiar with the book of Philemon. What was the circumstances that caused Paul to write the book of Philemon? What was the circumstances? There was a runaway slave named Onesimus who had just happened to run across Paul, who just happened to know Philemon, about a thousand miles away from each other. Accident? No, that was the Lord. And Paul led Onesimus to the Lord. And when he led him to the Lord, because he was a runaway slave and he was breaking the law, Paul said, look, you got to go back. And I'm going to give you a letter of recommendation and hopefully... Philemon will set you free. He's a good friend of mine, and I believe he will. He owes me, and I'm going to call in the cards, and I bet you he'll set you free. And so we know the occasion. He sent him back with that little letter. That's what the occasion was. First Thessalonians, second Thessalonians. What was the occasion for that, those two books? You remember the story? You don't remember the story? People were dying. People had been saved, and then they were dying, and Christ hadn't returned yet. And they all believed that Christ would return sometimes before they died. And so people were all upset. You know, hey, people are dying in the church. And, and uh, you know, Christ hasn't returned. So, so what's wrong here? So Paul clears all that air up. And he talks about the rapture. He talks about the dead rising first. And so, so that's the reason he wrote that. But, well, there's a reason he wrote the book of Hebrews, too. There's an occasion there. Here's what had happened. The Jews, the Christian Jews, those who called themselves Christians, living in Jerusalem, were still involved in temple worship. You remember John and Peter. Where did they go every day? In the book of Acts, where did they go? To the temple. These guys just couldn't shake going to the temple. I mean, just, just put yourself in their shoes for a minute. All your life, man, your religion was going to the temple. I mean, every day you would hear the shofar blow, and the priests would march in, and they would be singing these hymns, and, the, and, and, and there would be this beautiful music coming from the temple, and then they would make the morning sacrifice, and then they would make the evening sacrifice. And you were all part of that every day all of your life, and suddenly you get saved. And it was the temple of Yahweh, Yahweh God. Jesus is Yahweh in the flesh. And they understood that. So if it was the temple of God, it couldn't be wrong. And so they wanted to continue in temple worship. And that probably to a degree was okay, but here was the problem. They began to see the new covenant, not as an entirely different covenant, but as a patch to the old covenant. And so what they began to believe was that you're... Saved by grace, and your, all your sins are forgiven, but once you, once, after that's done, then you have, to, you have to participate in the festivals, you have to participate in the sacrificial system, because you're going to sin some more. And so they felt that there had to be additional sacrifices other than the sacrifice of Jesus Christ in order for them to maintain their relationship with God. You know what? Friends, there are a lot of denominations today that believe exactly that. There's a denomination that believes Jesus gets back on the cross every time you take communion because it's not finished. You still have to continue to sacrifice. The whole message of the book of Hebrews is that it is finished. What Christ said on the cross, it is finished. He meant it. And there's nothing that can be added to the sacrifices that Jesus Christ uh, made on that cross. So Paul takes this occasion to make this case that you can't patch up the old covenant. It's, you have to live totally under the new covenant, not the old. He had to learn the hard way, didn't he? He really had to learn the hard way because you remember what happened over in Acts chapter 21, you remember what happened? He went back to Jerusalem for the feast, for the Passover feast, and, and, and James and those guys who were pretty legalistic said, Paul, man, they, uh, the Jews hate you. They're, you're going to cause a riot. But let me tell you what you need to do. You need to go to the temple, and you need to go through the purification process and show everybody that you're a good Jew, and then they won't hate you anymore. That was appeasing. Uh, the Jews which, and, and the non-Christian Jews, which I think was wrong, and I think James was wrong. I said that when we were in the book of Acts. And so Paul goes into the temple and he goes through the purification process and he happens to mention that Jesus, you're saved through Jesus Christ and that both Jews and Gentiles can be saved and a riot broke out. <laughs> and they came and they arrested Paul. Really, they came and saved his life because they were going to kill Paul. And so I think from that point on, Paul realized, hey, the new covenant and the old covenant can never mix. It's not going to work. I'm never going to try that again. Isn't that exactly what Jesus Christ said? Isn't that exactly what he said? You can't mix the old with the new. You remember over Galatians chapter uh, 2, verse 8, I'm sorry, over in Matthew chapter 9, verses 16 and 17, you remember what he said? No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment and the tear is made worse. No one puts new wine into old wineskins unless those wineskins blow up in your face, unless they burst. When he was talking about the new wine and the unshrunk cloth, what was he talking about? He was talking about the new covenant. You can't mix the new covenant with the old covenant or it'll blow up in your face. And when you try to do that, it's going to always blow up in your face. You're going to be miserable. You're never going to find the rest of God. You're never going to find the peace of God. You're never going to find the joy of God. You're going to be absolutely miserable if you're trying to mix the two covenants. And all of us are guilty of trying to do that at times. And so it's Paul's message that he gives in, that permeates his epistles that he gives in the book of Hebrews. And that is that that, that, hey, the old covenant's been replaced by the new covenant. And you never go back. You never go back. I don't try to justify myself any long by the law, through the law. I don't, I, no longer do I try to justify myself, justify myself through law, Paul says. Go back to Galatians. And, and we just left Galatians before we went back to 2 Samuel. But, but go back to Galatians chapter 2. And that passage, I told you one of those refrigerator magnet passages. Galatians chapter 2, just a few books back. Look what Paul says in verse 18. Galatians chapter 2, verse 18, he says, For if I build again those things which I destroyed, the old covenant is what he's talking about there, trying to keep yourself safe through law. If I build again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. Uh, For I, through the law, died to the law that I might live to God. In other words, I'm no longer under the law. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God and try to go under law again. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain on my behalf. If I try to live under the law, I nullify the work of Christ, the work he did for me on the cross. If I try to live under the old covenant, I nullify the work that Christ did for me on the cross. And so the book of Hebrews, going back to the book of Hebrews, it represents a total break from the old covenant. And I almost laugh when I read interpretations of it that try to make it an old covenant law. Because that's not what Paul's saying at all here, or the author. saying. I'm going to say the author of Paul, I'm going to say, call the author as Paul from now on. If you don't like that, we're not going to break fellowship over it. But, but I, I just have a habit of doing that, so bear with me. But I, but I, I believe, you know, Paul is saying, Hey, the, the old covenant we're done with. We're now under a new covenant. And that's why in the book of Hebrews, Paul says 13 times, he says, the new covenant is so much better than the old. He says 14 times, he says, the new covenant is perfect. Five times, he says, it is eternal. The effects of the new covenant are eternal. Were the effects of the old covenant eternal? No. The old covenant was nothing but a shadow that was fulfilled by Christ. It never finished anything. But five times in, in the book of Hebrews, Paul's telling us that, that the new covenant is, represents the finished work of Christ. That's why I believe this book is so relevant to the church today. Especially to those who try to mix grace with law. Religious works with the finished works of Christ. When you do that, you only nullify the work of Christ. There's another great purpose for this book that none of the Old Testament books could ever do for you. I don't care how much you read them. And that book is to exhort us to enter into the rest of Jesus Christ. To enter his rest so that we can finally enter the holiest of holies and live in the power and presence of God. How many of you want to live in the power and presence of God? You're never going to do that if you're living in the holy place or if you're living in the outer court. You're never going to do that. And a lot of Christians live there. The temple, if you remember, was made up of two main compartments. Now, there's other, there was the court of the Gentiles, the court of the women, but I'm talking about the two main compartments. There was the outer court. And that's where the daily sacrifices took place. Okay, and then there was the building inside. And it had two compartments. One of the compartments was called the holy place. And in the holy place, you had the showbread, which was 12 loaves of bread, which represented the presence of the 12 tribes of Israel, being present in the presence of God. And in that holy place, there was a menorah, which represented the seven spirits of God, the perfect spirit of God looking out over his people, living in his presence. But in between the holy place and the other compartment, which was the holiest of holies, was a veil. And nobody could enter that veil, and inside that veil was the brazen altar where the blood was sprinkled once a year uh, the, nobody could enter it but the high priest and he would go in there once a year and he would make it on the day of atonement and he would make atonement and cover the sins of Israel and he would lay that blood on that altar. But nobody could go into the holiest of holies. That was the presence of God. Nobody dared to go in there. In fact, when the high priest went in there, they put bells on his tassels so if he and a rope around his, around his ankles in case he died, nobody was going in there to get him. They were going to pull him out. Because nobody wanted to die that terrible death. They were afraid of God. But you remember what happened on the cross. When Jesus died, and the moment he said, It is finished, and he gave up the Spirit, the veil of the temple was ripped from top to bottom. And, or from bottom to top. Which one was it, chap? Top to bottom. And the way into the holiest of holies, into the presence of God, it didn't come through the blood of bulls and goats. Who did it come through? It came through the blood of Jesus Christ. And so that way was made open for every single one of us. Over in the book of Ephesians, we're told that we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. What's every mean in the Greek? Every. It's, we're told in the book of Philippians that we saw this last Wednesday night that we're to lay hold of what Christ has laid hold of for us. He's laid hold of us perfection. He's laid hold for us all the heavenlies, all the blessings in the heavenlies. All of that is there for the taking. Where's it at? It's not out in the outer court. If you're still trying to please God with your own works, guess where you're living? You're still living in a wilderness. You're living out in the outer court. Some of you, hey, you're reading your Bible and you're praying and you're doing all of this, but you still haven't entered the holiest of holies. And you'll never receive those blessings until you do. You'll never experience the presence of God until you do. Andrew Murray, in his introduction to the book of Hebrews, tells us this. He says, The writer has great mysteries that he seeks to unfold, that the heavenly sanctuary has been opened to us all, that we may now come in and take our place there with Jesus in the very presence of God, that Jesus, our heavenly high priest, is the minister of the heavenly sanctuary, and he dispenses from there to us all its blessings and the spirit and the power of the heavenly life in such a way that we can live in this world as those who have come to the heavenly Jerusalem and in whom the spirit of heaven is the spirit of all our life and conduct. You know, I don't think anything should excite us more if we're truly born-again believers than to find the way into the very presence of God and to experience all the blessings he has for us in the heavenlies. And that's exactly what this book can do for us. Real quickly, if you'll take out your bulletins and look at the outline that I provide for you. You might want to hang on to this. I don't normally do outlines, but this book is so critical to get the the pattern of what Paul's, uh, the, the systematic pattern that Paul uses to, to teach us what he's going to teach us. And, it, and, and what he, he begins by telling us about the superiority of Christ. I'm going to just run over this real quickly. Over the prophets, over the angels, over Moses, over the priesthood. Christ is superior to all of that. We know that. But then he's going to tell us in chapter 3, verse 7 through 4 through 13, he's going to tell us about entering the rest. And we've got to enter that rest. You have no choice but to enter that rest if you're a born-again believer. And if you don't enter that rest, you're not a born-again believer. And then in chapter 8 through 10, he talks about the superiority of the new covenant over the old covenant. And then in chapter 10, he tells us about entering into the holiest of holies. Chapter 11, he talks about the people who have done exactly that. Men and in women of God who did enter into a relationship with God, who did rest in God. And then he gives us some practical encouragement for those who enter in. And then scattered throughout this book are several warnings. Warnings that will scare you to half to death if you're a born-again believer. But they're not intended for you. And that's what we're going to learn and that's what we're going to see when we see this in his context. But people run to this and say you can lose your salvation, and they use these passages in Hebrews to say you can. What the author of Hebrews is talking about, he's talking about people who never enter the rest, who never go into the holiest of holies, and he warns you that if you're still living under the old covenant, you will never enter in, and you will find yourself in hell. And those are the warnings, and we'll talk about those in detail when we go through them uh, as we... Go through the entire book. Let me close with a prayer that Andrew Murray prays for those who would join him in his study of the book of Hebrews. Let me, let me read to you his prayer. And I, man, this is my prayer for you as we go through this book. May the blessed master take us with himself into the high mountains. Even Mount Zion where he sits as priest king upon the throne in power each of us apart by himself, each one of you. That's, he, he doesn't want to take Calvary Chapel up on that mountain. He wants to take John and Johnny and Liz and George and Nathan and all of you and prepare us for the blessed vision of seeing him transfigured before our spiritual eyes in heavenly glory. He will still be to us the same Jesus we know now, and yet not the same. But his whole being, bright with glory and the power of heavenly life, which he holds for us and ways to impart day by day to them who forsake all to follow him. You want to get serious about having a fresh vision of the Lord? The book of Hebrews is the, is the book you need. It's not a magic book. Not at all. It's more of a road map that leads us into the holiest of holies via the rest of God to a place few enter in. I believe few people really make it into the holiest of holies, and very few people live there. God wants us to live there. And I can tell you from experience, if you'll make the effort by faith to study this book, and take its precepts seriously you'll experience jesus in a way you never have before changes everything let's go to the lord in prayer father we just thank you for using whatever whoever you use to write this book Lord, it was written to us all, and we know it comes directly from Jesus Christ. Lord, we know that you long for a closer relationship with every person in this room. But we allow so many things to get in the way of that relationship. Lord, I think the thing that hinders our experiencing you more the most, Lord, is, is our legalism. This idea that somehow we can add to the work of Jesus Christ. Fathers, you're going to teach us in this book, it is a finished work. Finished, once and for all. Lord, so I ask you, take this study in the coming weeks and months. And Lord, that you help us all to enter that rest that you have for your children. So that we can enter into the very holiest of holies. And experience your presence in a real way in our lives. And experience all the heavenly blessings you have for us. And all the power you have available to us. So that our lives count in this lost and dying world. Again, we just thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you for the finished work on the cross. It's in his precious name that I pray. Amen. I want to stand and we'll close in a song.